All right, everyone, welcome back. Solve for Why vlogcast episode number 15. I am on a brand new set. I'm kind of liking it. There's a, there's a lot of things going on. They gave me an iPad. You guys can't really see it. Uh, but there's a lot of things on the docket, so I'm going to introduce myself. It is yours truly, Christian Soto, my humble and gracious host or co-host or partner, however you want to look at it. He's a good friend of mine. Matt Berkey, how are you, young man? Young man, huh? Yeah, man, I'm in my 30s now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, how you living, man? How you living? I feel like you look good, you know? I'm glad. I, uh, I feel just well. How do you like this new set? It's temporary. It is a temporary set. Temporary. And that is because we are running the academy. We have a bunch of people flying in to learn from us. And they play, they let get lecture. And so this entire facility, sponsored by Google, uses uh, all the space that it needs. I actually really like it, minus that you know I had to disrupt my my work space. I flew back from New Jersey for the academy. I thought it was a it was a great flight. You know, United, fucking six a.m. flight out of Newark, New Jersey. It was great. You don't get to be salty. You chose to go back. Yeah, it's my birthday, man. I don't want to be here with like, where, where are we going to go? The Echo and Rig Steakhouse yeah. again? Yeah. Nah. Nah. I want to go see New York, man. I want to I want to experience the 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 life, the, the vibrant uh, energies of New York City. What would you do? I went to the New York uh, rooftop. So you went to a bar on a rooftop. It's nice, man. We have those here. There's no skyline or rooftop bars here. Yeah, Commonwealth. Old Vegas. Uh, no, I don't like Old Vegas. Sure. Why, it, why it, you? It's too, like, run down. So what are, what are some of the things you're experiencing uh, in terms of, like, the new forms of learning now? Like, a lot, I feel like one of the, that's one of the things that we've tried to tackle for so long. It's like, okay, people learn differently, you know, and in the academy, I feel like we're trying to incorporate all these things as best we can uh, for the clients. Using my my study of learning styles alongside like my own personal experience, how I learned growing up through uh, both academics and athletics, it's just like it's very clear to me that there needs to be a hands-on approach. People just tend to do better whenever they get to experience something. Mm -hmm. So like the idea of utilizing RFID tables, giving people immediate feedback uh, that they can watch that night, as well as long-term feedback that they can constantly go back and and review, seems like it is uh, really important. Um, incorporating a lot of visuals, uh, visual aids is critical, but I think the thing that we've added the most probably in the last, I don't know, five to 10 academies mm -hmm. is, uh, the introduction of like interactive tools. So utilizing like thought experiments, um, like we do range splits at the cash Academy where we kind of put the onus on the attendees to like categorize each hand in their range and, and give us you know, the bucket that it falls into is in accordance to its splits. Um, doing like simple exercises like uh, what would you do with ace-king on a myriad of boards and just going around the room, giving everybody a different board. Asking yeah, them. I mean, that was the part I feel like people really engaged. Like, yeah. you know, we gave them a hand, we gave them different boards and they got to hear other people's answers and they're comparing them to the thoughts that, you know, they have on a certain board and stuff like that. And then, you know, it was really nice after the academy, you know, I saw someone also tweet that they've been like crushing like their local games you know with like they put they posted their graph that's always amazing so like you know does that make you feel good when like 
people are progressing through the ranks like it because you know what they've learned and stuff like that or you think that it's just like kind of part of the process you know it definitely like impacts us in a way where it's always great to see that the methodology works Mm -hmm. but at the same time we're always we're always examining low volume spots right yeah so it's like it's difficult to pluck anybody out of uh, a sample size who hasn't played multiple millions of hands or hours and say for certain that like there's an improvement path there or whatever the case may be. But, you know, just the general nature of, of putting in work, uh, even if it's anecdotal in the response, like it feels good to be getting that positive feedback. So like from our standpoint, it's like, you know, even if it's like short-term variance in some capacity, like maybe one or two decisions were skewed in a way that allowed him to increase his EV or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I think just making people more studious as a whole gives them a better outlet. You know what I remember that I just remembered right now? What? I was upstairs in the old house. And I was like, yo, when are we going to work again? Like, when are we going to start studying again? And you're like, I'm not your guru. I'm not. You're on your own now. I didn't say that. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Fuck. What? Yo, you're like, listen, I'm not your crutch. <laughs> like, like I know this because these are all words you use. I didn't just make it up in my brain. Like you're like doesn't sound like me at all, man. It literally sounds exactly <laughs> like you. I'm sure we could find some some. Yeah, don't let people don't let them be your crutch. Like you know whatever it is. Like like do you think there comes a time where like people just kind of have to go up go on on their own? Like is that something like that? Like now? Well, I like, think that's the whole that's the whole methodology of solve for why, right? Yeah. Is that we're trying to train them to be better learners, not to be better poker players. Poker is just the vehicle through which that they are adapting these skills. Fell asleep on my cigarette. Had it in the house when uh, all I did was burn through the sheets. Guess that I'm lucky enough. Came home but my house got robbed. Took my laptop and my stuff. These my guitar was still there. Guess that I'm lucky enough. I'm lucky enough to grab on that big old butt. How do you derive that edge? Like, what what do you see that discipline is? Some like, where's your money coming from? Because if that's a strength, how do we make money? We first developed this in 2015. Uh, there was a lot less calculated models out there. So if I had asked that question of where are you deriving your discipline from, most people would have just been uh, say, kind of saying something to the effect of like height is right. Smart under the gun, eight seven of hearts. Oh mm. baby, it's clear. It's tough when the when the aggro guy is card racking. Yeah, you definitely want a three bet here. Generally speaking, you can mix flats here, but honey does. I don't like this flat. Not against smart. These guys have history. Mm-hmm. Smart made it twelve hundred with. Oh boy, Ace but this is wow. the benefit. This Sometimes is you just know. Oh wow. What? I like this flat, though. Sometimes we're facing under the gun. It's yeah. okay. You're also facing Brian Tinney, who doesn't fold, which is yeah, a negative yeah, that's, that's with ace-queen offsuit. Big, big, big thing to consider. Neutral board. Smart, Smart wants to introduce check here. Good check. This is a clear big bet spot. 
Queen of Clubs, you're not gonna get check raised often. Hundred is very good. Yep. Just check Smart call. Has a very clear call. No need to get out of line. Eight seven is not a part of your check raising split. Now this is gonna go check check. You're gonna have a lot of coverage on this card. You can introduce some big bets on this river. Yep. Big bet. Big 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 bet. Five hundred. Huge bet. No. Fuck. 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 God damn it, man. Just bet huge. You, you, have eight, or you have eight high. You're too good to check eight high. Maybe he calls with queens. Let him, targeting a 10. Let him figure it out. I'm sorry for the people that are listening next to their kids. <laughs> Again, I was just a little bit emotionally attached. He's our fiery to, Dominican. Ya tu sabe, mami, you know? The whole idea is that none of us are going to ever arrive at a point where we just hit this amazing crux where it's like, okay, I'm either the most talented or most knowledgeable poker player in the world, or I've reached my ceiling of knowledge and don't care to go any further. The last one is most likely to occur of any, but the reality is, is that like the whole reason why poker is so fascinating to so many people is because of its deep nuance. And the fact that even though we can simplify it down into a, a game that is just guided by mathematical decisions, it's still incredibly, it's damn near impossible to implement with such precision that we are very certain what we're doing is correct. And that's really what the last three to five years of solvers have kind of proven to everybody is, is not. You're going into the next topic, man. So go ahead, man. <laughs> well, it's, you know, they didn't demonstrate how much we do know. They demonstrate just how little we know. And all right, all right. Before we get into that, let, let's so that I can introduce it properly. You know, this is why I am the host of mm. this entire thing. There was a Twitter debate that you know, if there was a Twitter debate Hall of Fame for poker, Matt Berkey's like first ballot Hall of Fame. You know, it's like you, Sean Deeb. Not saying that you guys are you know have anything related, but I'm just saying he's also in there all the time. You know, fucking Andrew Barber's in there. Like there, there's a certain people that you can count on, you know, to be in the debate. I just think poker Twitter in general is very controversial because you have a lot of intellectual minds mm. who have differing vantage points and maybe only see it through their own personal bias. So I think these conversations are really good. I think Barber is like one of the leading guys that everybody should follow. He's the type of person who tries to engage in good faith arguments as much as possible and try to demonstrate both sides of, of the coin. All right. Shit, that was a logical answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so a Twitter debate ensued, and it was about solvers. Rob Young tweeted, you know, something about solvers, and it was pretty much like, has solvers killed the game? That was pretty much the overall, like, scope of it all. Is it good for the game? Is it bad for the game? And, you know, what did you think about that? Even the question being brought up, first of all. I don't know why people had problems with the question. I, I don't understand what the clamor was about him bringing this to the public eye. Effectively, any time you like publicize something to a recreational that they're, that, that they're not doing, that might give them like a solve or extra. How, no all right, all right. How let, let me, dumb do we think recreationals are? All right, remember the whole thing where like, oh, we're, we're, you know, the fact like when HUDs were the thing, right? Like HUDs were like, well, you know, these guys have these numbers that tell them exactly what we're doing and all yeah, this stuff, you yeah. know, like whatever. Solvers now is like the new wave of, of that yeah. you know, misnomer of like, oh, they have the answer to everything already. So that was already one of the things, but like, whatever, that wasn't a big deal. But then on top of that, 
But the controversy was simply like it's part of the study metric. Like it's not either good or bad. I mean, what I took about what I took away from it was that people thought that Rob didn't understand uh, solvers, or at least that was that was the the part of the argument that seemed most appealing to me. Uh, I guess that there were some that were saying like. Uh, not only does he not understand them, but uh, he's overlooking the amount of, I guess, bots and collusion and stuff like right, that that's right, taking right, place. Right, right. That's and also that, fair. But I think that's a completely separate topic. That's well, not he what was he's saying, at all talking about. Agreed. But okay, so there was a couple of things that came out of the thread because it was obviously a long thread. Then I thought Jason's people, then other people was the best. started new things. But like, okay, what he initially what he's saying is like. High stakes pros look like bots. Yeah. Right. That was the general thing. Like, you know, sites don't want them. And then someone shot at some clap back and was like, oh, you sponsor certain certain of these guys. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, all right. So, like, I think Jason Kuhn's response was really good Mm. in the sense that he kind of just, like, framed it as uh, solvers don't create the poker player. The poker player just uses these tools to his advantage. Or like the studied poker pro. I I got a little beef though. Because yes, at the highest level, right? Like of course they're node locking, they're doing all these things to like create like, you know, the environment and the things that they deem to be the most profitable. Um, sorry, not the environment, but they effectively node lock according to the environment that, sure. that things are happening. A tier under that, I think there is an entire spectrum of players that simply copy the strategies that are being implemented from the solve and play like that. Right. But I don't think that helps their bottom line all that much. All I think it it's improved is, a lot of players that I don't think that's true. I just think it hurts the environment. It takes the gamble out of the environment. And I think that was Rob's main point to begin with mm. is that the more people who are emulating the top class guys who are, who are demonstrating what a solver is capable of, uh, or what I guess, um, simple solver strategies look like. And I use the term simple, not in the sense that they're operating under pure strategies, but in terms of the sense that a solver is capable of far, far, far more than we've uncovered, right? So even when they're looking at mixes, they're still looking at rather restricted mixes, Mm -hmm. right? They're not looking at mixes for 37 different bet sizings. At some point we have to be uh, streamlining this process and we give it, you know, a handful of bet sizes and a handful of, uh, potential actions that we can take. Uh, and then also there's the assumptive process of range versus range to begin with. I think solvers would have sold better if they kept the name Dream Machine. Yeah. The fucking Dream Machine? I would yeah. have sold that shit for fucking 5K. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, the name solver is uh, somewhat appropriate in the sense that it's just solving an equation with the variables that you plug in. And I think that's kind mm-hmm. of, like, one of the big misnomers. But Dream Machine sounds sexy, though. It's like... Well, Dream Machine sounds like it's It can do whatever you, you want, but it's yeah. also, like, a little bit of, like... Dream sounds like some weird thing. science shit. It sounds sexual, but good. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that, like, you know, Jason's whole point was that not anybody can just grab this machine or grab this piece of ah, software. Ah, you like the Dream Machine. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Go ahead, man. Talk. <laughs> not everyone can just grab this piece of software and look at the the readout sheet and then just suddenly have a strategy it takes a lot of hard work to actually you think that's true i 100 percent think that's true <sighs> okay i see a lot of mimic- if it weren't true why are people still struggling with push fold charts yeah but that's 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 separate i think uh 
you that's got to be the simplest version of assault. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the people struggling with push-fold charts are not exactly the people that we're speaking of here. It's not? I mean, the people that struggle with push-fold charts are the people Rob Young wants on his site. Yeah, I agree. But I think that that's a big part of the community. Maybe. Uh, here, here's the thing that I've 100% come to understand over the last three years of being a teacher in this game. Mm-hmm. And that is the vast majority of the problem that plagues the community as a whole is an aversion to math. Mm-hmm. It's this lack of understanding that the chaos that drives poker is uh, at, at, its, at its core a very systematic mathematical approach. Mm. And the issue is there's no way to bridge the mathematical language with a regular language. So people just don't even bother trying. So let's talk about how then there's like other people that perform well through other metrics that are that are not exactly math based. So like what are your thoughts on then like people like Charlie Carroll who are saying like, you know, GTO is not necessarily needed, then goes out and just like smashes the Triton series. But that's unfair. Because, um, you know, I agree that... Is he putting a different illusion on the, on, on the case? He's then? using language to manipulate because I'm, in, I'm on his side. I don't think anyone is playing anywhere near optimally. Mm-hmm. There are people who are playing more optimal than others, of course, but we're all on a spectrum of exploitative play. The difference is the people who are playing... when you say more optimal, does that mean better? Because that's a it very... It means less exploitative. Does it that mean, mean it, better? Kind of. It just means that... that uh, their strategy is more bulletproof, right? So it's less okay. obvious how you're going to uh, eke EV out of these types of players. They have a much more strategic approach than somebody who isn't that optimal or isn't that that well formulated in their strategies. But it seems hard to. So okay, I'm gonna push. I'm gonna push harder because. Good. Okay, Charlie smashes the Triton high roller. Bryn, yeah, the winningest player of all time now at this point, right? Yeah. So we're looking at players who and maybe we could blame this on variants maybe we can't but are clearly not of the same elk of the others but that's what i'm saying yes you're right but when but the language you're saying is like bulletproof we don't know where the where we're deriving ev but like these players seem to have it figured out not figured out not figured out but they're they're definitely deriving ev somewhere well of course the field is 30 percent businessmen Ah, Where do you think the EV is coming ah, from? I see what you're talking about now. Right? It's just like yeah. they have variants on their side, so they're recouping an unfair share for those specific events. Okay. And that's not saying that they don't they don't deserve the EV or they're they're out kicking their coverage or anything like that. It's just at any given time when somebody wins these events, they're over realizing. I guess I don't want to make it seem I don't want to make it seem like you're saying these guys are losing in the field. Either. No, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. not even remotely close. Okay. What I'm trying to say and why I said it's a little misleading what Charlie says is because he's he's converting all the math into language, but he's using language in a way that resonates with the majority of people. Mm. So he's basically instead of instead of pointing out that the game is mathematically driven and that there are plenty of people who have a much more data-driven approach and are able to take those analytics and apply them into strategies that win. Instead of conveying it that way, he basically draws a hard line in the sand and said, there are these math nerds and then there's the rest of us. Yeah. And the rest of us are able to win through observation and psychology and all these other things. And while that is a thread that can derive profit in this game, it can't ignore the math. You want to know what Charlie and Brynn are really fucking good at? The pot odds investment model. Yeah. They understand it. 
They know what types of hands are supposed to call for full pot, for half pot. And sure, they're probably not as calibrated as an Ike. But, you know, variance makes up for that. If they're making small errors in those, in those arenas, what are we looking at? A tenth of a blind here and there? It's going to come out in the wash in the short run for sure mm -hmm. because there are people who are just naturally going to rub, run above expectation. We could pluck out any amateur. Yeah. Every time they win an event, Paul Fua got second in the Triton Main, right? Shout out to Paul Fua, baby, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's like, you know, I, I know, I've played with Paul a handful of times. Like, he's very competitive for his amateur ranking. Mm -hmm. But there's just no way in hell he has the same analytical study as like an Ike or a Dominique. Right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean he can't compete. Nah, he could definitely compete. Shout out to Paul Fua, baby. If you need, you know, I'm looking for a little stake in that uh, 500,000 game. What's up? <laughs> I like the way Brent Kenny plays. I like his hood gangster. Kind of reminds me of you in, like, the tournament realm of, uh, of like, poker. You know, like, real gangster. I just think he's willing to, to, to do more testing than mm -hmm. a lot of the, the field. So if you just look at it from the framework of the scientific method, I think the vast majority of the field is putting a lot of time and effort into the study, which is great. They're asking a lot of really in-depth, intelligent questions to a tool that can continually refine the answer. And they don't settle for the first point of feedback, right? They, they test all hypotheses uh, over and over and over again through this tool and running sim after sim after sim. And then when they're put into the live environment, they trust themselves enough to intuitively calibrate that. And then they look at the feedback model based on how the players around them are, are responding, right? This is a really good refined approach. The only thing that I think is different is I think Bryn just flips it. Mm -hmm. I think Bryn comes up with a hypothesis and then just shows up in game and just like test over and over and over again. For hundreds of thousands. Yeah. All but right. I think he's like really good at intuitively calibrating that process in real time where he's like, uh, you know, he just reverse engineers a lot of things and sees how, how how logical or nonsensical they may be. Do you think in 2018, there are still two camps of players, not necessarily exploitative versus GTO, but rather MTT versus cash? I think it's more studied versus unstudied. Hmm. And I think that that largely varies so i think like in the studied camp you have the data analyst you have uh the the uh, ob the observer and then you have the person who's like like the theorist who's kind of trying to marry it all together well this is my thing i think even within that like i've i've experienced that there's still a certain fish out of water thing that goes on like when certain MTT pros sit down in a cash game, 250 big deep. Yeah. As much as you've studied or as much as you've maybe seen solves, like you probably, you, you study what you play. When you're in a different environment, now you're 250 bigs deep in a situation where you actually could get check raised, bluffed on the river, et cetera. Do you think that there's still a lot to be said there. I mean, it, what level were we talking? Are we talking you know, somebody who plays 3,500s who jumps into a 510 or 1020 game? Or are we yeah. talking about like Jason Kuhn? No, no, no. Exactly. Not Jason Kuhn. Not Jason right. Kuhn. Obviously, Jason Kuhn can play all the games. And I'm sure like Fedor and these guys can all can, can jump in almost all cash games. They're going to be fine. Right. I'm talking about like, you know, the people listening to this podcast who are like probably like some high level pros and maybe a mix of others. But 
they're playing a 3500 and now they go play uh, 1020 or Bellagio because like they're trying to spend some time off. Like, do you think they're still favorites, even though they're big winners in the 3500? I think the less live experience they have and the less. So basically, if they don't have either a lot of live experience in the game that they're choosing to play or a lot of experience studying the particular metrics of that game, there's going to be some failure there. Mm-hmm. But I also think that that failure is never going to be as great as the spots in the game. So like well, they're yeah. always just going to be making EV off the spots in the game. Okay. They just might be giving a lot up to the best player in the game. How about the online versus live situation? I know you've seen that a lot, especially in the games you've played, where it's like you know someone's transitioning from being um, one of the best heads-up players online, yeah. going into live. You know, I know that I, I forget the exact name of the of the players. You know, they were these British guys that you played with uh, on live at the bike. You know, one of them was self-proclaimed best heads up player in the that world. Was Danmer. Yeah, Danmer. His underlings were there. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're his underling anymore, but if you're not, you know, if you're overtaking the teacher, then go ahead, man. Tuck your shit. Flex. I don't know. It's uh, it's Jason. He works for Upswing now. You'd have overtaken, huh? All right. <laughs> he has a course. Wait, didn't they beef? Didn't Doug Polk beef with Danmer? Yeah. Yo, that's fucked up, dude. <laughs> that's fucked up. This dude just like switched sides on the kid. I don't think there were ever sides. They were just like, it was just like, you know, the heads up streets were really competitive back then. It's like if I go and just like go chill with Doug Polk right now. You, no, you, it's you, not the same at all. Yeah, it's the same. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So talk about that. Talk about the online versus live situation. Well, that situation, I don't think it applies because those guys are both really high level and they have a live experience. Okay. So I think that they're certainly winning in most games. Um, certainly, or I would imagine even the one that we were playing. In a general sense, what I think holds true is that obviously the online player is far more studied and far more mechanically sound mm-hmm. than any live player. But the arena that they're coming from is hyper-aggressive and generally more shallow, which allows for hyper-aggression. Mm-hmm. The, the extrapolation process of their knowledge to a live venue, it's plenty good enough to win for sure. But what I think ultimately ends up happening is they make what seem to be pretty close errors in really large pots where they're against, against player types that just aren't balanced at all. So you think that's where the live player derives their EV yeah. from these guys? Yeah, I think that like when the live player arrives at the river in a close spot versus an opponent who's just not capable of bluffing, they're never paying off. Mm. Or not never, but they're rarely paying off, and they do a good job of like wiggling their way out of those spots. Uh, I think when somebody's transitioning from online because their strategy is so rigid to the data that they've collected and the environment that they're coming from, they'll find themselves 300, 400, 500 big lines deep and kind of maybe punting in river spots where they're going for a big bluff or they're going for what feels like a natural call against an opponent who has no folds left in his range or has no bluffs left in his range when he's betting. All right, so we spoke about uh, Paul Fui, and we spoke about... That's uh, not how you pronounce his name. How you pronounce Sorry, Paul. Paul Fua. All right, so Paul Fua is a businessman, probably uh, very well off, and he funds careers, allegedly funds Tom Dwan's career, Maybe a few others out there probably buys pieces. Uh, and we spoke about Danmer probably backing this guy. So funding careers. I kind of wanna I kind of want to go into that vein because I feel as if 
there's multiple things that always happen in here. Like if you talk about st like staking in today's climate is very hush hush, but it obviously happens like these games, these high rollers that are going out don't happen without staking. Um, but the question then always is right. Mm -hmm. How do people get staked? How do people buy pieces, sell pieces? Like this thing's probably one of the most intriguing, interesting things that, people on the outside uh always look for there was an entire like cnbc special on like poker staking like there was yeah it was, that was an article no it was on tv it's literally Don't chad power nah it was it was like ryan laplante there was a bunch of people in there like it was on cnbc it was huge there's also a youtube link on it i guess my big thing with this is that it's the one thing that i think the industry needs to change the most um but there's it's a private industry so there's really no incentive to I guess like what I'm getting at is more people would be attracted to the game yeah. if they understood on a grander scale, like how the business structure of it all worked. So I guess I'm not necessarily saying that people need to be more transparent with um, who's backing them and what their deal is and, and things like that. But it would be good for the health of poker, in my opinion, if people were just more transparent as a whole in the sense that they are being backed and that there are some standard protocols that are aligned with backing. So one of the things that happened was live at the bike, played a game. Uh, Mike Matisau, Phil Helmuth were in the same table. Helmuth had 50% of Mike at the time. And they openly said that in the beginning. Uh, in a different game, Jungle Man had a piece of Cantu. And Phil said, oh, Jungle has a piece of Cantu. Jungle Man had a piece of Cantu? You know, sometimes it's hard to get into these private games. You got to make sacrifices, you know? Sometimes you got to buy pieces of people you don't want. Or maybe you want. I don't, I, I don't, I don't speak for investment strategies of Jungle Man. He's done very well, you know? Yo, he must have Maybe been. some alleged decisions on, like, you know. He must have been crushing that game. Yeah, it's Brian, it, you know? It's Cantu, Jungle Man. Cantu's his JRB. You know, sometimes you got you to gotta get into these games, man. If, if, uh, if you guys ever want a piece of me... I'm willing to fly out to... Nobody's, uh, nobody's getting in a game bringing you. They brought Jungle Man. <laughs> no, that's different. That was so Cantu could get in the game. All right, I'll buy a piece of Cantu if I could get in some of these uh, Facebook games. What's up, Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be in, I'll be in there too, man. Sure. All right, so there's a lot of moving parts, right? There, there's the part of you know buying pieces, staking, uh, finding staking, and also like now in today's climate, Maybe sacrifices allegedly from like, you know, buying pieces to get into good games, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of business gets done. I don't know what exactly you want me to say about Come it. Come on, like, man. You're a high level businessman. Like the people want to know. The people want to know. Okay. How does someone go about getting staked at a normal level? Not at your level. Not at like, you know, you need 20 million. Honestly, I, I think it's harder now than ever to... Mm -hmm find any level of backing edges are becoming significantly smaller uh the trust barrier has been breached more and more over the the more time that passes since all of this has began mm -hmm. and deals are becoming less and less standardized so the whole i'll put up your buy-in and split the split the winnings 50 50 with you from rounders is just like dead that doesn't happen anymore um, so this is why I said, I wish people would be a little bit more transparent about being backed and about the protocol that goes into backing because the misunderstandings that take place to the public 
leave everybody kind of open to scrutiny and scorn mm-hmm. where we don't put our best foot forward as an industry. You know, like, uh, effectively, it's a cash industry, so I get it. Like, not everybody needs to have their business out there. But if we ever want this thing to look more like the PGA, where there's a lot of sponsorship dollars and players are removing risk and uh, still being compensated and things like that, well, then we have to make it appealing for a wider audience. And that goes by the wayside when one person thinks that everybody who plays on TV is a decamillionaire. And then the next person thinks that everybody who plays on TV hasn't risked a single cent of their own money in the last decade, and they're all dead broke deadbeats who owe and are buried in makeup. And like, mm-hmm. you know, even simple terms like makeup uh, is so misunderstood by the masses. Right. Like, they don't understand that effectively you're taking a high interest loan out where you're giving up a massive amount of your winnings mm-hmm. in order to borrow this money and, and facilitate your lifestyle. So then. Why in today's climate where tournaments are out of this world, like breaking records left and right, cash games are bigger than ever, there's clearly a lot of money yeah. coming in from somewhere, yeah, right? Yeah. So why is it hard to find staking? Or is it just well, I think, not I think, spoken about? I think it's not spoken about, number one. But number two, I think that the transparency issue is massive. Mm-hmm. You can't just like, we talked about this earlier today, like the idea of like, getting a collection of 20 to 25 people that we trust and think are very good, starting them at the 1-3 level and seeing who can progress. How? How could you ever do this, right? There's just no way to facilitate it without being robbed. Mm-hmm. So even if you expect to be to have like 20% stolen from you from the collective stable, it's like, well, that's a big tax, right? On top of like an already big rake at the 1-3 and 2-5 level. But I'm sure that happened and has happened in all stables whether MTTs yeah. or cash. Well, or- right, but it's much more challenging when you're talking about MTTs and online. There's infinitely greater transparency filters there mm. where you can check accounts, you can uh, you can see game histories, and there's nothing that the player can really do to, to, right. to make that Right, he has to give fraudulent. you the password. And that's right, it. Yeah. you can ensure that you're getting all receipts for tournaments. Like, sure, people could like start chip dumping and selling off stacks and shit like that. Yeah, but it's so But hard. like, yeah, it's, it's a huge it's another, barrier. It's another barrier. And yeah. it's another barrier of risk because all they have to do is offer the wrong person. It just gets back to the backer. It's a very small community. Right, so you're seeing then, because the risk in cash games to back someone and live especially is so high that it doesn't allow for ease of implementation for the staker. It doesn't allow for ease of implementation. Edges are very undefined. So it's not 2008 where you just can take somebody who's decent at this game, throw them in the pits and expect them to come out a winner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now it's like you have to have some sort of quantifiable edge to really justify putting people in in games above 2.5. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the return that you can make on below t- or two five and below is so small that it's like neither the backer nor the back e is very incentivized. So then, how do the games flourish above two five? I think people just make a lot of poor business errors, right? So people make backing errors, and then players make a lot of shot taking errors. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that like the community as a whole is aging, so it's more likely that people have. The, the foundational money necessary to play stakes like two five and five ten. Do you think the do you think that's a problem though? The fact that the community is aging and the people that are, you know, 
every year now when the WSOP numbers come out in terms of age, the the concentration is around that 30 year 30 year range, right? Right. And every year the 21 through 25 entries 21 to 25 year old entries like decrease and decrease yeah but that's um, natural it's is so it? hard to come up with money when you're 21 well remember though there was there was a huge you know during online era that's because that was that's was because online was flourishing and you didn't need very much money to accumulate a lot mm -hmm. the stories of running a thousand into a hundred thousand were really common back then and it wasn't because these guys were the best and the brightest they ultimately proved to be eventually yeah. But at the time, they were just in a really soft market and got lucky, right? It's a lot of survivor bias. Yeah. There's plenty of people that were probably comparable to a Mike McDonald that just failed out of the gate and didn't have enough 1K reloads to ever make it. I feel like it's a tough place to... Uh, prog There's a thing. It's I'm in tough a, if you're 21. I'm in a, I feel like it's tough if you're at 510. Why? Because, like, where do you go next? There's no, like... You hustle. You, you have to start hustling. Yeah, Puffu, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you can make a really good living if you're one of the better 5'10 players. And uh, you have to just start branching at that point. You have availability to start playing $3,500 WPT main events. Like, you have to understand, when, when I was in that same position in my career, where there, was a, where there currently is a great barrier of entry for 21 to 27-year-olds to get past the money factor, back then... Um, the the barrier of entry for us was was obviously reduced. We had a lot of value we could chase, but the tournament circuit was immense. Right. There was a lot of 10Ks. Almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't run prelims. You didn't go to a WPT stop and like grind 1Ks. So that yeah. just didn't really exist outside of the Brigada. Yeah. So it's like you were restricted to online when it came to MTTs. And that was fine because they were super lucrative. Yeah. But I'm just saying that the inverse is true now. The money factor is very great. So it's hard for these young kids to hustle up enough dough to go out there and beat one, two, to beat two, five, and like progress through the ranks that way. And I get that, but patience and perseverance can overcome that, that obstacle for sure. Mm -hmm. It's just a secondary barrier of entry is then created once you become one of the better or best five ten players. You have to be willing to uh, kind of branch out and pursue a lot of different paths. You have to go the tournament route. You have to go the cash game route. You have to travel to find both. What is the cash game route? I think that it... Because that's where I'm at, right? Like, right. I feel like I play 510, I win 510, and then I'm like, there's no other game in this room, and there's one other game in the city, and it's 4X my stake, right? It's 10, 20, 40 consistently. Yeah. Um, so now what happens? I mean, know? I think that you have to be very versatile, and yeah. you, have to be, you have to make a hard decision as to where you want to most invest your time. Uh, and that actually kind of like brings up uh, a topic that I was going to hit you with because I, th I find it fascinating because I think people don't think about this the way that I do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that I'm right. I, I just think it's an interesting point of conversation. Really? So effectively, the question that I would have to you is how would you invest your time mm -hmm. if risk were not an issue? So I'm not saying that you would have infinite money. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't. You would have the same amount of money that you have now. And you would still have the ability to earn more if you wanted. But what I am saying is that uh, you have no chance of ruin, right? So you may have far less money somewhere down the line. You may have far more money, but you'll never hit ruin. 
Like if if shit hits the fan and it gets as bad as you could ever imagine it being, some life event will occur that will get you back on an uptick. I think my my I've changed views of this like within the last three years in that I'm definitely not afraid of like going broke just simply yeah. because I feel as if I have enough network that I'll be fine. Right. So like, okay. So like, I guess what I'm saying is like my network is worth more than what I have. Right. In my so bank. you, you yeah. are the, the, the proposition I'm offering. What, so what do you mean? Okay. So okay. like first let's, let's scale back a step. Okay. Where are you currently investing the majority of your money? In poker, I think. So, so when it comes to your liquidity, the vast majority of it's tied up in poker. I'm talking about yeah, yeah. spending, investing to earn everything. Yeah, like poker and crypto. Okay. Yeah. What about like spending? I don't think I spend that much. Okay, fair. All right. So let's assume then the majority of your money is utilized uh, in a way that is meant to earn you interest. Mm-hmm. In some in some compounding way, yeah, right? hopefully risk involved, of course, yeah, yeah, but some compounding way. Okay, so since effectively money isn't much of a concern of yours, how then? Damn, mom, I made it. <laughs> God damn, you ever thought we say that in this country? Go ahead. <laughs> Optimally speaking, how would you want to invest the bulk of your time? I don't know. I think that's the that's the that's the part I I struggle with the most, simply because. When I get pulled in one direction, I just like move all in that direction and then I like move in a different direction and I get, so I'm really, it's hard for me to like diversify my time well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, it's tough to like think of like off the top, like, okay, what's the optimal strategy of your time? Not not optimal, just for your own personal happiness. Yeah, yeah. You know, assuming that like you never had to worry about accumulating money, Mm. how would you spend your time most optimally in that regard? So like, I didn't have to worry about money and I was just going to make money regardless. Sure. I mean, you're not just going to make money regardless. You're oh. just never going to go broke. Like I would play poker to the level of my desired time of playing poker, not for money. And then I would like create projects that like I find fulfilling. That's it. That, that would be the com- completeness of your life. No, I mean, on, on top of other things, like I would like do extracurricular things, but like that doesn't, I don't think that's the answer you're, that's no, I'm interested in everything, because I think if I asked, yeah. I, I think if I asked somebody who works a nine to five, yeah. their answer would be like, "Oh, I would do nothing. I would like spend all my time with my family and my friends. I would party. I would go out. I would." No, I don't have like, I would do those things, but I wouldn't like. I still find fulfillment in achievement, in sure. in like you know getting to a certain place in poker or like building something that I think. Uh, I would find value that provides value both for me and for someone else. And then on top of that, yes, of course, I would like to provide emotional value to the people around me. Okay. I I think that's a pretty solid answer. Currently speaking. Why, thank you. (laughs) Currently speaking, uh, do you think that that's how your priorities align? Maybe in a different distribution of that, but I think... So those maybe, are the things I focus on. Maybe not in the distribution that you would say optimally, but you're right. still hitting the metrics. Yes. Okay. So here's the reason why I bring this up. Uh, I've, been, I've been dying for this reason. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's not personal to you. Uh, I just think it's like a pretty interesting thing. Um, first of all, I think the answer of I don't know is a common one and very reasonable. But I also think that it poses a greater question as to why. Mm-hmm. Why don't you know? Secondly, uh, for you in particular... Um, 
this this scenario already exists. You're just not aware of it, mm. right? You already have a network built up large enough where you're very unlikely to ever go broke, number one. Number two, you've reached a level of financial security where you're at least comfortable enough that you can shift off of the idea of spending all of your time and effort making money. And I think a lot of people overlook that because I think that they feel so validated by keeping score with dollars that they never actually arrive at a point of kind of doing a mental checklist as to like what actually ha makes me happy. Yeah. And the third reason I bring it up is just because, uh, you know, I come off a certain way on this, on this podcast mm. talking about dating being work and shit mm. where it, it appears that I'm a slave to my own or I'm a victim to my own circumstance and that I do a bunch of shit that I don't want to do and that I don't find any pleasure in the things that I do. Fact of the matter so is... you're trying to use me to make a point for yourself. Not you in, in particular, uh, people as a whole, because yeah. I, I think that... I think the thought process you ultimately arrived on is very good. Um, the point that I was making with you is that you could already do that. There's literally nothing stopping you. Well, it's different because I think there is... Yeah, it's unlikely I go broke, but there are still certain financial goals I would want to reach. Like, I think I want to hit... You but know, the, for whatever but it's that's worth. still the yeah. case in yeah. the scenario I presented. You yeah, can always true. make more money, but you'll just never go broke. All I'm removing mm -hmm. is risk. Yeah, right, right, for sure. I'm not sure. giving you infinite money. I'm just right, saying right. there isn't any risk. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is your risk is relatively low. Yeah. Your risk of ruin is quite low. Well, my risk of total ruin is I, I think my risk of ruin, period, is moderate. But like my risk of my, my ability to recover is rather high. Then your risk of ruin is low. I mean it'll hurt for a little bit. Right. Yeah. That's the difference, right? Yeah. You're you're attaching a pain point to a non-ruined point, mm -hmm. right? If you're able to recover, then you are not ruined. Yeah, that's true. By definition, right? Right, right, right. Okay, so your risk of ruin is relatively low, but maybe the uh, de-scrambling what it is that would make you achieve peak happiness mm. is still not quite there. And that's yeah. fine. Like, you know, it takes a lifetime literally to figure this shit out and then we die. <laughs> so you have that to look forward to. That's fair. Um, but for me personally, the way that I view it is I've kind of for a long time understood that, uh, the risk of ruin is always going to be relatively low as long as you are an intelligent person who has something to offer. Right. And that's always been kind of my, my maxim where it's just like, yeah, there would be a lot of pain and suffering and doing things that I didn't want to do, but I'll never be homeless. I'll never fall victim to some of the worst things that could put possibly happen in someone's life. And when I started thinking of it from a time investment strategy, which this is much more recent, maybe the last six to 12 months. Um, and a lot of it came from how much effort I'm putting into the business and trying to decipher, like, is it worth it? When I think about it that way, what I came to realize is that I'm doing exactly what I want. And what I mean by that is if you ask me how I will spend the bulk of my time in my lifetime, It'll be very simple and clear. It'll be through self-optimization in my routines. Yeah. And I know a lot of people think that that's very boring, right? But the fact of the matter is, I'm going to hit you with an idiom. Do you ever hear, you ever hear that variety is the spice of life? You ever hear that idiom? <laughs> no. Okay. Can you follow it? Variety is what kind of changes the, well, like, what the hell? All right, so so <laughs> variety is the spice of life. What that's basically saying is that spices enhance things mm. very significantly, yeah. right? To a point where like um, we love the thing that we are consuming 
do impart to the spice. But if you add too much spice, it's now bland or not bland, but like oversaturated with it. And like it's, it's basically unpalatable to us. I understand. And it's the same thing in life, right? Where we crave this variety because nobody wants to fall victim to a boring mundane lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But then whenever you get too much thrown at you, where like you literally have the world at your fingertips, everybody shuts down. Yeah. It becomes too much. And the whole point that I'm trying to say is that like, I guess I began to understand somewhere along the line that what truly makes me happy is finding pleasure and passion in that routine and then sprinkling in new experiences, new friends, yeah, uh, that's cool. basically variety in some capacity rather than seeking out the variety all the fucking time mm-hmm. and being miserable with my day to day. I like that about you though. Like I know what to expect. Yeah. Matt Berkey, you sure. know, like, it's like, we know it's like, you know, you know how it goes with me. It's like, you think Berkey wants to go to this place to eat? And I'm like, nah, you don't go out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not in a bad way, but it's like, I know you're not going to like that place. It's like, it's not going to serve the food that you, well, that, that's, eat. What's, yeah. that's what's so nice yeah. is that I don't feel social pressure in a lot of mm-hmm. situations. It's like, I get to pick and choose what I yeah. do and I understand pretty clearly what will make me happy. Yeah. So it's like, if it's a sushi joint, I'm probably not going to go. Right. But if it's like a there. burger joint, you might. You'll right. consider it. But if 30 of my friends are going to a sushi joint, yeah. then I'm just going to go because it's a good social experience. For sure, for sure, for sure. So it's like I don't ever feel compelled to do things that are going to disrupt my my number one time investment, which is self-optimization. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, by default, then have massive discipline. And it's not because I'm so fucking disciplined. Some people would debate that if they saw you play poker. Right. Well, that's fair because that's my spice. <laughs> Right. I said it last week, man. Do what makes you happy. Live your life. If you want to be a self-optimization person, that is your life's calling. No, but that's that's a bullshit statement. What do you mean? Because if you just if you removed any sort of responsibility and construct to everybody's life, we would probably have more suicides and misery than we ever did whenever there was some sort of rat uh, cage to keep people involved in. Mm -hmm. We crave structure. We are desperate for systems, right? Every system that exists, we created. Yeah. These, these aren't just like, they didn't fall from the sky. Mm. You know, there's a reason why our brain logically works in a certain way. And what I'm getting at is that like, for the vast majority of people who lack self-discipline and lack the ability to stick to a hard, fast goal that they desperately want to reach, the vast majority of them fall victim to the idea that they need this sort of variety more than they need the consistency or they don't self-trust enough to invest in the consistency. And what I'm saying is like, I don't care about food. <laughs> Give me a dozen eggs a day for the rest of my life and I will live an optimal life otherwise, right? I don't need that variety. That's not the thing that is going to, to, to raise my antenna. Yeah, right? raise your But antenna. if you take people away from me. Raise your antenna. Yeah. Go ahead. If you take people away from me, that's a bigger problem. Yeah. Right? Because that interweaves both with variety and consistency. Everybody's different. I'm not trying to shut anybody out of this podcast. Like, shout out to the people that are listening for the first time. Shout out to the people that are listening for the last time. And I think that's (laughs) fine. You know, if you want to live optimally, if you want to live suboptimally in some facet because it makes you happy in another facet, that's fine, man. Like, this is a loving podcast. 
you, you always got to bring discipline. Always about discipline. What's about a fucking soft white boot camp in here? Yeah. And they're going to learn some discipline. Yeah. Only eggs. Like, no. It, see, that's the thing. You're, you're clinging to it. It has nothing to do with eggs. It has it everything has. to do with eggs, man. <laughs> it has everything to do. Eggs, eggs have all the macronutrients you need. It's a superfood. Yeah, they're fucking great. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Eggs are amazing. Mm. But the whole point that I'm trying to get across has... How many eggs are... How many egg cars are in the fridge? Probably like six. Six? Yeah. Nah, 16. Nah. So is that, is that the vision you, you... If you can create a separate class for Solve for Why, not poker related... Would it be in that vein, the optimization vein? Like, yeah, but I don't want to frame it that way because it seems so daunting and intimidating and it seems so restrictive, right? Mm -hmm. The whole thing that I'm trying to get across is that it's not restrictive at all. We're all victim to our daily routine. It's actually what frees you is what you're saying. Yes. What I'm saying is that you'll enjoy the, the variety and the spice or whatever you want to refer to it as if you just steer into the daily routine. I agree. You do something every single day. Right? Yeah. You eat, you sleep, you, you move your bowels, whatever. Like you do those things every single day, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But like, how do you feel the, how do you feel the gaps? What do you generally do every single day? I mean, how do I fill the gaps? I mean, I don't know. How much time do you think you waste throughout the course of the oh, day? I mean, do everybody you know? wastes too much time. Yeah. I no, agree. no, no. But, Me too. But, but not too much time because wasting time is okay, right? Vegging out in front of the TV, good, whatever. You need to chill. Uh, I'm not trying to like say that like every single hour of your day needs to be accounted for. What I'm getting at is how many days... Do you wake up with absolutely no plan whatsoever and then just realize you have the freedom to do whatever you want and you choose to stay in bed? Sometimes I like those days, man. I understand. But what I'm saying is that the reason why you like those days is because you're, you're fighting so hard against what a routine day would otherwise look like, mm. right? So like liking those days is the same as like liking a day where you're going to go to the pool or liking a day where you're going to take a trip or right, liking right, a day right, where right. you're going to play poker. You're just... You're just creating a litany of routines mm -hmm. instead of one concrete one that is bettering you every single day, right? It's like, I didn't understand this when I was young. When I had to show up to practice every single day and do a bunch of shit I didn't want to do, it was like, yo, let's just get to the games, mm -hmm. right? Like, this is nonsense. It's like Alan Iverson. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about practice, talking man. about practice, man. When you just talk about practice, we sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. It's like, yeah, it, get, it, gets, it gets boring, it gets routine, and this is like how relationships become stale and everything else. You fall in love, you get married, you're with this person for the next 50 years. Okay. How many of those days do you think are going to be routine? Uh, I mean, but you kind of love the routine. Like, you, you expect the routine. If the routine is broken then something's wrong. This is, this is what you're saying. Well, what I'm saying, or I guess like the point that you're trying to make for me here is, first of all, you're coming from the vantage point of somebody who hasn't been with someone for 50 years. Yeah, no one's been with, not that many people's been with the same person for 50 years. years. 10 years, whatever. Day yeah. in and day out. You yeah. live with this person, you sleep with this person, you, right, let's assume you don't. But it's work. the same thing. If like, if your shorty don't text you in the morning, you're going to be like, ah, man, something's wrong. She's probably mad at me. Your, your brain's like start. Why do like, you think that is? Because you're expecting a, a message. Okay. Yeah. So we're putting expectations into a certain routine. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, we're saying we don't want routine because it's boring. Mm. Right. So the whole point is if you're able to optimize the routine mm -hmm. where it manages expectations, 
where it still provides freedom to each individual. I get this. Now. But then still gives enough of a caring response to show that you give a shit. Now, all of a sudden, you have a very healthy day to day that you don't have to put much time or effort into. And that frees up your thoughts and effort into going the extra mile when it matters. I got it. I'm going to set a pretext that sends a text at 8 a.m. like, good morning, babe. So I can not even have to wake up. That's that's special optimization. That's that's optimi- now we're talking, Burke. <laughs> it's just like automatically sends it at 8 a.m. I don't have to wake up. I mean, I am optimizing my time. The whole point of the routine <laughs> is that you want the routine. No, I'm going to this. You're not this trying is the to move. skirt the routine. Listen, this is the move. You're going to send 8 a.m. Good morning, babe. 810. What are you doing? that is the move it is so optimal i'm on a new level i I, yeah kind of (laughs) sort of i guess but the whole point is that those who are successful dive headfirst into the routine and they fucking love it yeah they love getting up at 7 a.m they love hitting the gym they love going for a run i'm not gonna lie there's there are certain routines like i've done that have definitely got me even better this is a poker podcast at the end of the day like i would not go to bed without watching a run at once video for like two years straight like every day for why video no well you know we yeah <laughs> i made them though so like i but yeah, you know no, no. you know I, of course like we, we're gonna study other things that are not only our consumption no, for yeah so like i would watch it and a variety of people and i would just watch it and i would like take some notes and then i would just like leave it and then i'll like run by some things by you like oh i heard this thing yesterday like what do you think You know, it's fresh in my mind. Right. The beauty of that is that conversation now qualifies as variety. Mm. That conversation doesn't occur without your routine. Yeah. Right. And that's the whole purpose of like the growth metric. It's like if you aren't comfortable in your day-to-day routine, if you haven't formulated some sort of protocols that you go through every single day, if you don't exude discipline, Mm. 24 7 365, and that doesn't mean that every moment of your waking hour is disciplined, I'm just saying that the things that you're going to do every single day should exude discipline, eating, working out, mm. working, studying, all of that stuff should be where your discipline lies so that you can be very unruly and undisciplined and childlike whenever it comes to everything else, which is considered play. Stay hard. I love Goggins, man. <laughs> I fucking love, honestly, like he's, he's a huge inspiration to like this conversation in a lot of ways where it's just like so much of, of, trying to find your footing in life is really recognizing where you're fucking up. And a lot of those fuck ups are just coming from a place where it's like you are selfishly clinging to something that doesn't exist. Like, oh man, I remember the days when me and my boys, we would just go out and we would get a drink and I missed that. And now all of a sudden, like you're trying to be single Mm. when your boys are like 35 married with kids. It's just like, that's gone. That was at a time where like discipline didn't exist in anyone's life. So you're just filling the void with a bunch of fucking shallow prospects. Well, you heard it here first. You're going to have your first Google sponsored discipline camp boot camp solve for why by yours truly. Matt Burke, he's going to show you how to get big arms, big girls, small girls, blonde girls. What other girls you like? Burnett. Man, this was a very interesting podcast. I can't even end it. I like it. It's like I'm so intrigued by this topic, but at the same time, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) So with that said, it's a wrap.